Welcome to The Brew, a platform where we have open conversations in the lens of our generation, inviting interesting guests from all walks of life to discuss topics ranging from business to technology to sustainability. Enjoy the show over a freshly brewed cup of coffee or tea to start your morning. All right, welcome to The Brew. I'm your host, Valtteri Salamaki. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Luis Macedo, and we have a very special guest. Today, we have Stephen Hoffman, also known as Captain Hoff, and he has quite a resume. You are the CEO and founder of Founders Space. Also, you are the author author of three books, one of the books we'll be talking about today, and you're also the founder of two venture-backed startups. So it's a pleasure to have you today on the show. And I think to get started, you can talk a little bit about your kind of background and how you got into the world of entrepreneurship, because that's mainly what we're going to be talking about today. Sure. I got into entrepreneurship right out of college. You know, I've always been interested in being an entrepreneur. Actually, in college, I launched my first startup. It was a summer project. It didn't go that well. Uh, And so I didn't drop out of college. I stayed in college. I wasn't a Mark Zuckerberg or a Bill Gates where it just took off and, and then you drop out of college. But I learned a lot doing that. I was actually selling computer services. So I was out there selling, we were called business enhancement consultants. But my path into startups has really been interesting because I began my career actually as an electrical computer engineer. So my father, he was a rocket scientist at MIT, and he was like, son, you should study computers. They will change everything. And of course, I listened to him, but I had other passions. Like I was really, as a kid, I was really into filmmaking. So I made over 50 movies as as a child, all the way through high school with animation and all my friends, all these different movies. I was into games, a huge gamer. I was making role-playing games and board games. I wouldn't buy them because a lot of times I didn't have the money. I would actually go to the game store, look at the game, and then come home and design what I thought it should be. And then I get all my friends to play it. So I go to engineering school, graduate. I'm going to go work in the tech industry. had a lot of job offers, but I decided, you know, I just want to follow my passion. So I said, I'm applying to film school. And if I get in, I'm gonna go. So I applied to the two top film schools, NYU and USC. I got into USC and I just went. I got my master's degree. I graduated from film school, actually went to work in Hollywood, worked my way up the ladder, became a TV development executive. And then I saw an opportunity. I said, well, film and entertainment is combining with technology. Games are gonna be bigger than the film industry. And at this time they weren't. Most people in Hollywood, they didn't even imagine the game industry could ever rival the film and TV business. But I said, it's gonna happen, it's gonna be bigger. Like I was already a gamer, so I was sold on that. And I saw the technology, how it was improving. So I met the founder of Sega. And at the time, Sega had just passed Nintendo to become the number one game company in the world. And the founder of Sega sent me over to Japan to come up with new ideas for games. So it was an incredible experience. I was embedded in a Japanese office with all Japanese, you know, and and I was collaborating with them. And and we did some big projects. We had like Michael Jackson was in one of our interactive projects, which was like a theme ride that we were doing for MGM in Las Vegas. And then I got the entrepreneurial itch again. And I said, I should be making games for myself. Why am I making it for this big game company? You know, I could do this. So I quit my job moved back to California, which is my home, 
and uh, landed in San Francisco and I started my first company. It was a game company called Lava Mind. And literally my first game was called Gazillionaire. And it was all about how you can become a gazillionaire. It was actually a game that teaches people entrepreneurship. I wanted to make a game that was nonviolent. I wanted to make a game that would help people grow. And it was, it was you know, it was targeted kind of at anybody who's a gamer, you know? So it's so one of these business simulation games. It actually got picked up by Microprose Spectrum Holobyte, which was the largest PC game publishing company at the time. And they put it out everywhere. And the game was a big hit. So uh, Gazillionaire is out there. And then I made a bunch of other games. They did really well. Um, in fact, those games are still going. They're still on Steam today. After all these years, they're cult classics. Um, after that, uh, some of my friends and I, we got together and we launched our first venture funded company. Although it wasn't venture funded at the beginning, we had to go through crazy time to raise that capital. We didn't know what we were doing. We finally prevailed. And I did a bunch of venture funded startups. And then after my third venture funded startup, I wanted to take a break. Like I was, you know, I just wanted some time off. And so I was taking a break and all my friends started to come to me and say, my nickname is Captain Hoff because it's my gamer handle. And they go, Captain Hoff, help me with my business plan. How do I raise venture capital? How do I, you know, develop this product? So I started to help them just for fun. And then I started a blog, which I called Founder Space. And on that blog, I started to answer questions that they were asking me. So I'd answer it to them and then I go write up the, the answer and put it online for other people. Soon I had all of these entrepreneurs coming to me and it just evolved naturally. We started these groups where I'd introduce them to investors and marketing people and lawyers. Then we opened our own incubator accelerator in San Francisco. And then we were at just the right time. All these people were coming from all over the world to Silicon Valley to find out what was the magic. They, would, they knew about, they started to hear about Founders Space and literally I got invitations all over the world. So we started expanding and uh, went to all these different countries. And now we have 50 partners in 22 countries all around the world where we don't necessarily have our own incubators, but we support other incubators. And in some countries with big markets like China, we have a number of incubators. So we have like incubators in a lot of their major cities like Shenzhen and Hangzhou and Xi'an and Wuhan. So we have founder space. In the other countries, we collaborate with the existing team and it has been an amazing experience. No, that's, that's uh, probably the wildest upbringing, but I feel like that is so common now with entrepreneurs of that journey of following your passion, but going in a route, like first you went Hollywood, then you went into the gaming industry, then you built your venture, but all of those steps, do you think that's what actually eventually got you to that venture uh, funded startup is if you didn't go through all those steps and those learning processes, do you think that you would have even been ready for uh, venture back capital? You never know the path not taken. But what I can tell you is that all those steps I took helped. And mm -hmm. they were part of my personality because I like to say, you know, certain people are want to be entrepreneurs and yeah. some people like they can't even help it. They have to be an entrepreneur. And those are generally people who are curious and want to create something like I always just wanted to build something like whether it was games or movies or you know products that I I just wanted to build something be creative and put it out there into the world so that was my like core driving thing and I knew no matter what I did 
I wanted that would be involved in it. And then I'm a person who doesn't mind risk. And when you're doing like a startup, you know, if you are risk adverse, it's going to be really painful because and, you know, nothing ever goes as planned. You know, you're spending your own money at the beginning. You're, you're facing all these huge obstacles that seem impossible, and but you just have to keep going. So I learned that. And, you know, along the way, I had successes and failures. You know, some of my games were like big hits. Other ones, you know, you'll never hear of again. But um, this that taught me so much. And it allowed me uh, today, when I work with hundreds of entrepreneurs around the world, it allowed me to really empathize with them, to really understand what they're going through, because I'd been through it. I'd been through failed products and successful products. I'd been through failed fundraising ventures and successful ones. So I, I really knew, I, I really know now uh, what they're thinking, and I'm able to really relate to them on that level. Yeah, I think, I think that's, I mean, We'll definitely jump like pretty much right into the, the the books, surviving a startup, and how this all ties into it. Because I think the one part that is so important when it comes to uh, giving like mentorship to startups is that empathy of you actually having gone through it, and then understanding that there is no right way to do it, but there's ways to mitigate that that risk or that that mental pressure and all these kinds of things. And I mean, that, that kind of goes into one of the first things uh, that, that you, you discuss, which is what is the right reason to start a venture? Why, why do you even go into a startup? Um, and, I, and I think that's the most important piece to like your entire story as well. And for most entrepreneurs, the difference nowadays between entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs, because entrepreneurship is this kind of like hot, sexy topic for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think that causes a lot of problems because Oh, yeah. a, a lot of entrepreneurs are more entrepreneurs and they're not going into it for the right intentions. Um, yep. Go ahead. I think you had something to comment on that. That's exactly right. So, you know, I see people out there and I talk to them because they come to Founder Space. They want to work in our accelerator. They want to join our accelerator. And I ask them, you know, why are you doing this? A lot of people, well, they've read about Silicon Valley. They, you know, heard the glory. You could be, have a unicorn. Who doesn't want a unicorn? We all want a unicorn. And, you know, and everything that comes with it, you know, who, who you would love to be the billionaire out there that everybody's looking up to. But uh, those aren't necessarily the right reasons to start a company. So just because you want to be a billionaire doesn't, or, you know, you know, start a, you know, be famous doesn't qualify you to be an entrepreneur. Also, I talked to other people and they said, I don't like my job. That's why I'm doing it. Well, you don't like your job. That's not a good reason to do it. Yeah. Other people are out there. I just, I want to be my own boss. I don't want anybody bossing me around. Well, again, that's not the right reason to be an entrepreneur. So you, people have all these different reasons to do it, but I'll tell you the one reason that I think defines really great entrepreneurs. And you can see it out there. Really great entrepreneurs, they, want to give birth to something new that will have a big impact in the world. They really uh, are passionate about what they are building, what they are making. And it, unless you have that passion about what you're actually making, because you don't know if you're going to wind up a billionaire, you don't know anything else. But if you really care about what you're making, your chance of success is so much higher. If you're just out there for the other reasons, very easy to get discouraged when things don't go right. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, I, uh, I, I was gonna say that there there was a you kind of touched on it a little bit, but 
the the one line there's a few lines in your books but one of the lines that i, I loved is a uh, is a uh, if your job isn't exciting change your job don't start a company it's like that dude like let, let me tell you something it's it's very easy to like justify starting something in your brain when you're like when you're in a place where you're like uh you know th this I, I feel like I'm stagnating. I feel like I'm not doing X, Y, or Z. Maybe, you know, I could do it better. It's very easy to justify that in your brain. Um, but making the leap and to your point again, making the leap because you think you cannot just do it better, but you can do something that will create change in an industry um, are two totally separate things. Doing it because you're bored, I think, is like basically the one of the worst things you could possibly do. Um, but like you mentioned, doing it because it's something that you're passionate in, something that you feel like you can create this very big, not just growth, but this very big, maybe even culture change within your industry, I think is massive to us. And I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, why me and Val are, are here kind of chatting with you right now. It's like, we think that we can do it better and we think that we can do it right. Um, another point here, and one of my favorite things, and I was going to mention this, is um, one of your quotes said, uh, um, do you want to suffer under the most under the worst, most tyrannical boss in the world yourself. I, I do. Like, it was one of the first lines in the book that like really just like smacked me in the gut. It was, it's like, I have grown and I think Val, we, we can kind of touch on this, but like I've had, me and Val, I'm sure we've had like crappy bosses in our lives, right? We've had like bosses who are super like stiff and hard and has to be this way. But I have, I never thought I would experience myself and like, a, like basically like an internalized boss that is just the worst critic in the world. That's caught, like I do one thing and it's just immediately like, nope, this is the worst thing you could have possibly done. Do it again, start over from scratch. Um, yeah, I, in these, uh, we've we've really gone gung-ho with this uh, over the past like 18 months, real, real talk. And I have probably grown more gray hairs in these 18 months than I would like to admit. <laughs> And I will tell you, your normal boss, you can escape your normal boss. You can go home at night. You can go on vacation. You have weekends away from this person. But if you're your own boss and you're your own slave driver, tyrant, who's always telling you, never take a break. You've got to work harder. You, you're not doing enough. You can't escape that because it's in yep. your head. Well, yep. you can escape it. And I will talk about that. But you really have to work on changing your mindset. Yeah. But a lot of people go, you know, I just want, you know, not to have a boss breathing down my neck. Well, wait till you are breathing down your own neck. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. And, and it pushed it, it to, to that point. And I'm definitely interested to hear how, how to mitigate that. Cause I had to learn that kind of the hard way. Cause I'm one of those people that I don't stop working unless I like physically, like my body, like will stop me from working. And it got mm -hmm. to that point. Cause I, I started like dealing with severe anxiety problems because I was working like a hundred hours a week. Like that is not normal for a human being to, to work that much, but I'm so passionate about what I was doing. That I was like, I need to get this done now. I need to get this done now. And I wasn't pacing myself until I learned that kind of the hard way. And I'm like, okay, I can take a break backwards. I understand that these things, there's a thing called delegating work as well. There's a thing called trusting your team, all these other factors. And it, and it, and it takes that reality factor because before that, when you're under a boss and stuff like that, it's like you do your task, you get it done. You have the accountability of that, but that's it. When you leave work, you're done for the day. But to your point, your mind keeps working. And especially mine, it's like if I have something that's still on my to-do list by the time I'm trying to go to sleep, I'm not sleeping that night because I'm going to be thinking about that until I get it done. But it took a while for me to get over that. Now I'm, I know how to like 
control that that urgency but that is a huge learning lesson i think for a lot of entrepreneurs especially if they're really passionate about it is that passion can eat you and i i know later down the line you talked a little bit about like uh why um startups do fail and one of them is burnout it's not like one of the you know top reasons why they fail but i, I can definitely see why that is it's because you might be so passionate about what you're doing and putting so much up front but it's a marathon like it, yeah. it is sprints it's a lot of sprints but it's still a marathon at the end of the day and you have to treat a startup like one otherwise you're not going to be there for very long working on that idea yeah. when you are doing a startup you really need to think about your mindset because mm -hmm. actually pushing yourself harder and harder and harder doesn't necessarily produce better results mm -hmm. i like to say uh it doesn't matter how hard you work if you're working on the wrong problems so a lot of entrepreneurs like they will be driving themselves like crazy to work you know day and night but they're so myopically focused on on certain tasks that they don't see that those tasks aren't really going to transform their business that they might move them along marginally better but they're not going to be the thing that takes them to the next level so stepping back from your job and this this means not working all the time and actually getting some perspective on what you're doing going out to other people asking them their advice can really show you where you put where you should be putting your energy and I, you know i work with startup founders all the time so i see this you know what you you're going through and you know everybody goes through i went through it right i was a slave driver that's why i can write about it like i know like how crazy it is and then i realized that some of the times i'd be working so hard that i wouldn't realize that you know we needed to course correct but you know the more work you put into it the more work you want to put into it you don't want to admit that you're you know you're going down the wrong path so you just block those things out the really great entrepreneurs i have met in my life they don't they don't do all the work themselves the, first of all they look at what they do best like if you are just truly amazing at something that nobody else can do as good a job as you you should be doing that like in your company but if you can find other people who can do stuff better than you why are you doing it like why now they they're often the complaint is well i don't have money like i can't hire anybody to do all these other tasks so i have to do them all like how do i get around that that the reason you can't you don't might not have money but you have something more valuable than money you have your vision of the company and what it can become and as the leader as the ceo it's the number one thing you should be doing is translating that vision to other people and bringing them on board i like to say uh the ceo's job is to feed the beast like your job is to go out there and bring in resources to your company and the first resource entrepreneurs need more than anything else is not money it's not you know going out and raising venture capital it's not even a product like they don't even need to build a product what you should be doing you should be putting 80 percent of your time into finding the people who can who you can work with to build something much more incredible than you could ever build alone or with whoever you're working with now because i will tell you you know you bring in those people magic happens you try to do it all yourself not much happens so but the hard part is going out and find the people that's why you need to make it your number one job i am going to go and find those people that is my job my job isn't to develop my idea my job isn't to build a prototype my job isn't to talk to angel investors my job 
is to go out and, and, and really find the best people and get them on board. Like, and you have some equity, you can give them equity if they are the right people. Do not compromise. Do not take people just because they're available. Do not take people just because you know them. You need to find these people that are like, when you put that you and them together, boom, like it's, it's just there, you're going to propel. And as soon as you get those people in place, you'll know it because everything else starts to happen. You're, you're not focused on doing every job. They are doing their job. You're doing your job. It's so much easier to raise capital as a venture capitalist. Now I look at these companies, I'm always looking at the team first. If the team isn't good, they can have the best idea in the world and they are going to fumble the ball. They aren't going to get it out of, you know, across that field. It, but a great team, even if they start off in the wrong direction, we can use a course correct. And if they are really have that amazing talent and stuff, they can figure it out. In fact, most companies out there, you know, we like to think they all knew what they were doing from day one. Well, most of them didn't. Most of them, you know, it doesn't matter if it's Google, YouTube, uh, you know, Facebook, all these different companies, they started out in one direction and then they pivoted. And most people don't know those stories. Yeah. And I, I, I think that point that you just brought up the building of a team, that was the, one of the biggest lessons I learned, especially because when we were building free logic as a consultancy, that's a little bit different. Cause I like, as a team of like even five people, we can consult companies and we can do our job. That was different. But when I started building an audio tech company, which is a hardware company, that requires a whole slew of expertise that like I didn't understand and my co-founder, he's an audio engineer. Um, he didn't know either. So we had to get engineers on our team. We had to get product designers on our team. And that was the main thing is like pitching the vision and getting them on board and, and then having been part of it. And to your point, the second we were able to get everybody bought in, everybody, look, there's no money involved. I've told them they're not, <laughs> we're not going to see a penny for probably many years but here's the equity, we're building this all together. I'm not gonna be stingy with the equity. I wanna make sure everybody feels like they have a real piece in this. Um, once we got, actually this summer, our product designer who originally was a consultant, I know in your book, you're also talking about consultants are thinking in the short term because they're getting cash up front, which I agree with. He actually asked, what can I do to invest my time for equity versus money? And that was the point for me. I was like, now we have the right team. We have everybody who's bought in. And even if the idea that we have right now doesn't work, we can pivot, we can work together because the, the speed that we can work together is unmatchable. And that was, that was like a huge moment for me as, as the CEO is like, we finally have something like we, even the idea is great, but like we have something in the team side. And that honestly was more satisfying to me because that helped me kind of take a lot of the time and commitment away from activities I was spending outside. I was like, I can pull them back in. Um, so I, I agree that the team by far is the biggest piece. And also in our, a consulting company free logic that's how we hired we hired everybody's different skill set everybody's a different part that everybody's in their own silo and they're really good at their own silo and then we can work collaboratively as a team um because otherwise it also doesn't work <laughs> so yeah. so that those that that by far was like the lesson learned that i had in entrepreneurship is that if you don't have a team your idea everything else capital yeah. And even one of my mentors gave me a really good uh, piece of advice as I was trying to raise capital a bit earlier on until we were really actually investable. Uh, he brought up is like money won't solve your problem because if you can't solve those underlying problems without capital, money's not going to make it any better. You're probably going to get lost in the capital and you're probably just going to waste that capital versus having a clear mission. So he helped us kind of take that step backwards, understand, reevaluate our company uh, and get us to the point that we were investable and our funds were actually can actually take the risk out. So investors not going to look at it as like, 
where you put your money really into it. it's not going to create any value out of it but that that's so many things that you kind of have to learn as you go because uh when you look at entrepreneurship externally and internally you, you don't see these things you you only once you live them then you're like this is so important because if i don't understand this my idea means nothing <laughs> i uh, i think uh one, one thing that that was really funny to me in the book was uh the, the line is like if you can't convince at least like two two of like your most like talented charming and like uh like best friends on your company then you know don't do it basically uh and i started thinking i was like okay how how did i get involved with free logic and then i then i remembered that nikhil uh took me out to beer and pizza and talked me through it and then so i'm i'm val we met at a at a uh, school event yeah, but then the yeah. first time and that was like not very informal but then the second time it was just us literally just shooting the breeze outside of a coffee shop Talk about uh, SEO for so yeah, hours talk, literally <laughs> talked about like like business strategies for like yeah three hours straight uh, until it got dark, um, so yeah, there's a lot of validity to the uh, uh, wine and dine, charm them up, and then uh, try to get them bought into the mission. <laughs> yes, and once you get your team together, then you have more challenges ahead of you mm -hmm. because the CEO's role, you really once you have your team together, the CEO's role is to step back look at the company say what does this company need to move forward not to be but not to do those tasks to go out and figure out how to bring it into the company so first you get the people you need to get to the next level then usually once you have the people uh you need to go out to your customers like you need to go out to your customers and when you go to your customers because they're you're building the product for them ultimately and a lot of companies it's they're they're it's their, they'll eat their own dog food. They're building a product that they love, they know, and they know other people need it. That is really simple. But if you're not doing that, if you're not your own customer and you don't really know, then probably what's in your head isn't exactly right. Because, you know, you have this idea that they need it, but until you go to them, you aren't going to know. And when you go to your customers, your job isn't to try to sell them on your vision. Like literally, that's not your job. Your job is to figure out, do, do they really need what you what you're proposing because if they don't you're dead in the water if you ignore them you're going down a path that will literally lead you off a cliff and a lot of company a lot of startups do this like they just ignore the customer they build it anyway and they find out or they don't even talk to their customer in depth really listen to them and they find out there's no need for that product that's the number one reason startups fail like and it's a simple reason if you go to them early on, as early as possible, before you write a line of code, you know, when you just have a concept with your team, with these amazing people, all of you together, and you are talking to multiple people out there, the users, the customers will need it, getting data, building a great business is about getting as much information as early as possible so that you can chart your course, right? And you can't chart your course until you get this information. So really listening to them. and. The, you may go to your customers and they may say, oh, that's nice. Like that's, that's, that's great. Come back later when you've built it. If you start hearing that from, let's say a hundred people that they think it's nice, come back when you built it, you know, you have the worst idea in the world. Why? 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 Because nobody's going to tell you they hate it. They're going to say, oh, that's nice. Go away. Like <laughs> Come back when it's ready. Like the people are just going to nod their head and, and it, but they're not going to be enthusiastic. Like you, when you go to people, when you go to your potential customers and you're in a dialogue with them and you're talking about what you can potentially make for them before you've even built it, because you don't want to waste a lot of time building it, 
and they react to you this way, they go, oh my God, when can I get this? Like this, uh, will you make it? Can I get on board early? Can I be a beta tech? How do I get this? I'll even pay you. Then you know you have something. Like that's real, right? Oh, it's nice. Come back later when it's ready. It's nothing, right? And you need something solid. So I tell people, don't pick an idea because if you pick a specific idea at the beginning, that's the worst thing you can do. Like people say, you don't start with an idea. And I say, no, you start with an amazing team and a direction. So you may say, I want to make the fishing industry more sustainable. And you may have a lot of ideas on how to make the fishing industry more sustainable. There's so many things they do wrong in the fishing industry. But uh, you need to know what the fishing industry will adopt. Like if you're going to make a product that goes in the fishing industry and nobody wants it, even if it makes it more sustainable, you're going to have a hard time growing a business or getting any investors, right? It may be a great idea, but it's not a great business. Not every great idea is a great business. If you want to change the world, uh, the best you could go and be a nonprofit, right? And try to do that. But honestly, being a profitable country company is the way to go because you can have a far bigger impact, right? You can literally fund yourself as you're going and raise huge amounts of capital and make enormous impact on that industry. So you need to go to the industry and start to figure out how can, what will benefit them that will make it more sustainable, right? And only uh, by deeply engaging with them and really trying to figure out, you know, what are the headaches they, they are having? Like, what are their pain points? What, what are the things that annoy them or drive them crazy? What do they, what could affect their bottom line? Like make them more efficient. What could make them more profitable? All of these things, you need to find out what matters to your customer, align that with your values and what you want to build. And when those meet, boom, you have magic. That's, that's when your company starts to really grow. Yeah. I, I, I... I, I that that definitely once again is a, a huge lesson learned and especially when you're building um an, an any like product or service most likely the first concept you have is not a good concept and you're gonna have to validate it and the, the biggest thing yeah it's like if you don't talk to your customers and it's funny too because like i'm just in the pathway of building my company i'm definitely not even close like i'm very early on in that process but i talk with a lot of ucr students that want to build their own companies and they always ask me like, oh, like they talk about valuation. They talk about these ideas. I'm like, no, like, have you talked to anybody if they even care about this? Like I learned that all the way through as I was building and failing ideas that I had when I was in undergrad and before I went to my MBA. But these students, that's the first thought is like, like the big, like, here's the market cap size. And this is, this is how it's yeah. like, that's so <laughs> irrelevant. And the, the biggest, like the biggest thing that scares me is when somebody is like, it's a billion dollar industry. All I need is 1% of that industry. I'm like, well, no, that that's doesn't not, mean anything. Not... You know, we see those graphs all the time as venture capitalists. We roll our eyes like, great. We know if it's a big industry or not, you don't need to tell us that. What are you actually doing <laughs> and who is going to use it? And what is it going to do for them? You know, creating a company is about creating value, creating value for other people. Um, if you keep that at the forefront of your mind, you'll be much better off. Exactly. No, that, yeah. that, that was, that was, that, that's, it's so, so important. I think that that product market fit, how to get to that, that point, how to do customer discovery. That is the step one, always for an entrepreneur, like every, everything else, after you have the team, figure that out, do customer discovery, figure that out. It's a long process and also go into it with like, it might be a couple years to gather that data. It might, it might take a while to really understand that process before you can actually get started 
um, on that. But that actually goes into a, an interesting kind of second step that you do talk into your book, which is when's the point when a company actually is ready to raise venture capital? Because I think that's the other part is that a lot of startups, one, they just think automatically that their idea, they're ready to raise capital, like no matter what, like this yeah. is an amazing idea, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then the other part to that is like how venture capitalists actually think, because there's a huge, I think, disconnect between entrepreneurs thinking that their idea is revolutionary, everybody's idea is revolutionary. And then how a venture capitalist actually looks at it because at the end of the day, it's all a risk association. Like that, that is the kind of the bottom line of how investment capital works. Because otherwise, why would you invest in an idea if it's, it's just too high risk and there's not returns there? So could, could you talk a little bit about like, when do you think a company actually is ready to raise venture capital or how they should even approach that process? A company is ready to raise venture capital when they have some proof that they have discovered and this is the hardest part, right? They have discovered pent up demand. Like there is demand in the marketplace that is not being met by any of their potential competitors. And it is sitting there waiting to be tapped. Because if you're honestly not uh, going after demand that hasn't been met, if it's already been met, if their company's already doing what you're doing, and maybe you have an idea to make it a little better, you've you've lost the race. Like it's game over. These people are already out ahead of you. They have a brand, they have relationships. They, you know, they they can just add that's like you're making it incrementally better than something else out there. So hard for an unknown little company to gain any traction in the market and to really grow. Now, if you want to be one of these companies that explodes, well, you need an engine, a force behind that to explode you. And the beauty of the world is always changing new technology is emerging markets are shifting people's needs are changing you know with covid and all these different things everything is always in flux because it's in flux there's always new pools of demand being created now the job of a great entrepreneur is to go out and find tap that demand like discover it that's what vcs are actually after they aren't after they don't care what idea you have like because an idea is only as good as it can be realized in the real world like they care have these people number one do they have the team to execute on it and if they do have they discovered this pent-up demand that is just ready to explode and then you need to prove it to them right and you need to prove it to yourself like you know do are these customers out there really uh, having this problem or they're really anxious, you know, if it's a consumer thing, like a new social app, like, do they want to do this? Like, they might not even know it, but when you show it to them, they want to do that. Um, and you just have to allow them to do it because there's that latent demand there. That is the entrepreneur's job. Again, your technology, like what you build doesn't mean anything. So a lot of entrepreneurs are engineers and they always think, well, if we have the best technology in the world, we, you know, you should value us really highly. We should just raise money on our technology. But your technology is not your business. You can have the best technology in the world, but if people don't need what it does, it's just technology. It's just going to sit there. It's, it's never going to become a great business. Entrepreneurs actually really are not the are not inventors. There's a big difference. There's in, the entrepreneurs tend to be innovators. Like they take a product and they take technology and they match it to the market and they make it better. And I have a rule. This is my fundamental rule of entrepreneurship. There are only two ways a startup, a young startup can explode like and be ready for venture capital. They need to do one of these two things. Number one, they need to go into the world 
and they need to build a product that's different than anything else out there, right? It's totally different. Nobody has tried it there and, and they are just tapping this new fresh pool of demand that's waiting. Or they need to go into a market and there are people out there. There are people providing this service. And more often than not, it's the latter. It's this case, right? They're because people are doing everything one way or another. Like most stuff they need to get done, they're getting, they're doing something uh, to get it done. There's somebody servicing them, but you can't do that incrementally better. You have to do it exponentially because people, there's inertia out there. People only switch from one app to another app, not for a feature, but if it offers a different core value that's so much better, right? Then they'll jump to this new app and they'll be like, oh my God, I gotta use this. Like it's either different than the other app or it's just so much better that they can't justify using the old one. Same with business products, B2B products, always the same. So you have to do exponentially better or different. And if you can do that, you can enter the marketplace. You and you found and identified that demand and you've gathered the data, VCs, you need to prove it to them. Like they, you can say all the ideas you want. And if they're a smart, if they're an inexperienced VC, they may write you a check. But if they're a smart VC, they will actually say, well, show me. Like you can say whatever you want, but show me. So how can you prove to them that customers want whatever you're selling? Like you don't have to build your product. That's the beauty of it. Like you can literally go out there, talk to lots of customers and record their reactions and splice them all together like it's 15 second reaction and show it to the investor. Look, these are all these customers at these big corporations and you can see they need this product, right? Give us the money. Maybe you're ready before you've even built the product. Other times you have to launch a prototype, get it into the marketplace, you know, show that people are actually using it, that the user retention, the growth rate, all these things are going up. Then you're ready for venture capital. Really smart venture capitalists, they're not that adventurous. Like they don't want that much risk. Like you said, it's risk versus reward, right? They want to have the best reward at the lowest risk. And they are looking at a, as many companies as they have time to look at. And they're always going to choose the very best. They're just going to go for the best. Just like your customers will always choose the best product, right? If you're a second best or a third best product in the market, forget it. Like, why would they use you? They're going to use the best product they can find. Venture capitalists are going to go, you are the product. They're going to invest in the best startup they can find. Yeah. Uh, you just, you, you just broke down my last year of knowledge in like <laughs> five, five minutes. Uh, I, I appreciate that insight. I think that's so important because like, like I said, there's, a, there's this huge disconnect, huge disconnect between how entrepreneurs treat I need capital, right? Like it, it was the same thing early on when we were building our venture. I was like, well, I need capital for my team. I need capital for the, the hardware to create this product. It's very expensive to create a hardware product, blah, 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 blah. But then we realized real quickly, it's like, no, let's figure out the minimum amount of capital we can have to validate that there's interest in it, get usage data, use that usage data and have that intelligent insights so that investor conversations actually are like valuable, not just like we're pitching an idea because that means nothing and it's just going to be dead weight and it's going to be the whole concept you talk about kissing the frogs and you have three chances to talk with an entrepreneur i mean a venture capitalist or an angel investor and they're most likely just not going to be interested because you don't really have anything tangible there that they're going to be um, interested in because it's just so much risk at that point in time um and 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 that's one part that i wish they kind of taught in early on but they're you got you to learn it directly through, you know, the founder space, I guess, uh, to be able to get that knowledge and understand um, how how venture capital works, how angel investment works, 
It's not easy to get capital. It's very hard to get capital, but you have to know how to play correctly and what insights the investor actually wants. You hit something on the head. Now, a lot of people think, well, there's so much capital out there. So many startups are getting funded. Why can't I get started, uh, get funded? I have a better idea than all those other guys. Like I hear this all the time. I actually felt this when I was raising capital. I was like, my idea is so much better. Why am I not getting funded? You can't compare yourself to other people, first of all. Some people get funded because they have re a really good relationships. Some people get funded because they are industry experts and people believe them and they're like, we'll fund them. Other people get funded because they are brilliant salespeople. Like they can, they can sell ice to Eskimos. They can, you know, get somebody to give them money when they need it, even if they have nothing. But you, it, those people won't necessarily be successful. Like they still have to have a great product. Like they can raise as much money as they want. And you know, all the companies that raise money that fail, you never hear about them again. Like we all have very short-term memories. Like, you know, in a venture capitalist portfolio, the majority of their companies won't do well. Like they won't be have been worth investing in at all. Some will fail, some will give very marginal returns, some will drag on forever. But really out of their portfolio, let's say they invest in 20 companies, if one of them, one of them breaks out and becomes the next Facebook, Twitter, Google, you name it, right? The next big unicorn, that pays for all the losers. So that's their model, right? So you don't hear about all those people raise money and then they went nowhere. Like I know a lot of them because I've been in the industry a while. So I see like it happening over and over and over. And then to raise capital, you're, you know, you said it's hard. It is hard until it's not like it's it, the bottom line is don't expect it to be easy. Like when you go out to raise capital in the real world, uh, you know, it's either feast or famine. Like usually if you have something, if you figured it all out, if you can prove to investors, there's this huge demand and we have the right team and that we're at the right time, right? Then everybody's all over you. Like you have too many people, but if you can't, then nobody, nobody responds. And it's, and it's incredibly frustrating because you could be really close to that point and not even know it. Now, every time I was raising capital for my company, there was a point when I was on the floor, totally exhausted, wondering, you know, because I'd gone to these VC pitches and some of them dragged on and on and on. Like I'd meet one partner and then they'd introduce me to another partner and then they would ask for this information. Then they would ask for that information. Then they would wait three weeks. And like all the time, I'm like, you're waiting three weeks and you kind of said you love the product, but you're not moving. And, and then they would invite me in to talk to somebody else. And then they wouldn't respond to my emails. And then finally, I would get one VC firm that has a partner meeting, which is the meeting where they gather all the VCs around the table. And they're all like, you know, and that's when you know you're going to get an answer, like, because they've taken the time. They're serious. Like, but in a partner meeting, a lot of VC firms operate this way. Actually, the majority do. If one partner says no, they don't do it. They have to have a consensus. Why do they do that? They do that for a couple reasons. Then the biggest reason is they don't want somebody in the firm saying, I told you so. That wasn't a good deal. I told you, you lost our money. So they're covering their ass. Like, like if everybody <laughs> says yes, they say, well, you had your chance to kill this deal and you didn't kill it. So don't say you told me so, you know, we all agreed to do this. And also it's a way of vetting startups. Different people have different opinions and there's always more startups out there for them to choose from, right? So I've been to these partner meetings we're literally, you know, I had the, I went through all those, you know, all the steps to get up to the partner meeting, you know, to get to that partner meeting. I got to the partner meeting and somebody, I don't know who in the room killed the deal. 
Like, oh. you know, even though I had champions and everything else, and some people were super excited about funding me, it only took one of them. I, once you leave the room, you don't know who it is that shot down the deal. That's when I'd fall on the floor and go, I can't go through that process again. So I came up with rules and you alluded to one, you know, the, the three frog rule, the kissing frog rule. Now, th this is uh, something I tell entrepreneurs, you know, you are looking for your Prince Charming to carry you away, like to make all your dreams come true, give you all the money in the world. But you, you know, all you have are frogs. So, you know, if you kiss enough of these frogs, one of them may, may be Prince Charming and actually turn into Prince Charming. So you're out there kissing frogs and the frogs are venture capitalists. Like they're, they're the venture capitalists. You don't like kissing them, but you have to do it. You have to kiss up to these frogs. So you're kissing these frogs over and over and over. Well, I'll tell you, some of those frogs, you know, they will, they seem like, they seem like they are very happy with what, you know, you kissing them. But honestly, if you kiss the same frog three times and it does not turn into Prince Charming, it's just a frog. Meaning that venture capitalist will never invest in your company. So this is how I limit the damage of going out and pitching in the, in the real world. When you go out to uh, pitch venture capitalists, your time is valuable. You're trying to run your company. You're trying to build a product. You're trying to engage with customers. You're, you know, trying to recruit more people. You have all these tasks on your plate. And then venture capital is a full-time job. Like <laughs> raising money could take up all your time if you let it. So you need to put the venture capitalists in a structured format where you go to them, but you don't, you go to them and you do it in a way where you can quickly at the earliest possible point, decide whether they are going to, whether they're likely to invest in you or not. You never know for sure, right? But the first point is when they contact you. Let's say you're on AngelList and, and a venture capitalist contacts you. What do you, you know, you're on AngelList, they, they contact you. Um, how do you know they're good? Well, first thing you should do is there's some people on AngelList who claim to be angel investors, who claim to be venture capitalists, who really are trying to sell you a product or service like they're a lawyer or a marketing person and maybe they've done one angel investment or something you know three years ago but they're really not they're trying to get you to look at their product or service you don't want those people you also don't want people who are looky loose who they like say they're an angel investor but they never invest so what you do is you ask them how how recently have you invested in a startup like what are the last three companies you invested right away you can screen out all the ones who aren't active like and narrow it down like if you don't already know them if they don't have a reputation boom you can see who's who's worth who's worth your time when you go to meet them very hard to sell on the first meeting like you're meeting with them like very low chance on uh, so you just pitch them your idea you know form a relationship really listen to them try to get good ideas like i always say every time you meet with uh uh somebody who has been successful in their life Usually angel investors have been successful. Venture capitalists have been successful. That's why they're in those positions. You can learn something from them. So don't make that meeting about you selling them because you're wasting a great opportunity for this consultant. You might have to pay 500 or $1,000 an hour to actually give you advice, giving it to you for free. All you have to do is ask. And they love it when you're in a conversation. You're not trying to pitch them. You're, you're trying to help them understand your business and you're getting uh, ideas from them. You're asking their opinion. People love to give you their opinion. So, and then they're getting excited. The more opinions they give you, the more invested emotionally and psychologically they become in your business. Another really important thing. So you're pitching these investors on the first meeting, you have a great conversation with them. 
Second meeting, you say, hey, if you need anybody else in the is, is going to be participating, please bring them in in the second meeting, you know? And in the meantime, you ask if there's anything they need. Is, is there anything that they need to make a decision? You meet with them the second meeting. Hopefully, you've given them everything they need to make their decision. If they have anybody else there, they brought it. You try to close that deal. You basically, uh, you basically ask, you know, are you ready to invest? It's that simple. Like, when are you ready to invest? Um, you have, I've given you everything. If they say, ah, oh, I don't know, you know, we need some more time or I need to run it past this person or that person. You say, okay, but you know, we don't have forever. You know, I'm really busy. I can't take a lot more meetings. You know, you really uh, have to let me know soon whether you can invest. If they require a third meeting, you know, you're going back to talk to them for the third time. That's the point where you really lay it on the line. You're like, you know, we, uh, I need an answer from you now. You know, um, I'm so busy and a lot of VCs, you will hear this, a lot of them will say, we would like to follow. We don't want to lead. Now, what does follow mean for those people out there who don't know? Follow means that they're not going to be the first investor. They're going to wait until some other investor comes in, uh, vets you, decides you're a great business. And then if they like that investor, they will jump on board. That's really advantageous to them and does you absolutely nothing when you're trying to raise your capital because anybody could follow. Like once you have a lead investor, they're going to bring in their friends anyway, you know, if they're really passionate about the deal or they're going to take the whole deal themselves because they don't want it. They want it so much. They don't want anybody else to take the equity. So they're not doing you any good. So you really need to tell them, you know, I'm really looking for leaders. As soon as you hear they want to follow, that's a no. Just take it as a no, move on cross them off your list. Like you don't need to waste more psychic energy on them. You don't need to waste more time on them. You know, they are off your list and you tell them, look, you know, I'll, I may try to bring you in the deal, but I can't guarantee anything. Like as you know, as soon as we come across the right investor, they're going to want all their friends to invest and they're going to have like a lot of things. So as soon as they say they're going to follow, what you do is you come back at them and say, if you want to follow, introduce me to an investor who's going to leave because then you get something out of them, right? Like if you're going to follow, it's got to be from somebody that you point me to, because then I'll like make sure, because you made the introduction that you, I have a reason to get you in that deal. If you, you know, if it's somebody else from that, you have no relationship with, it's going to be hard for me to bring you in that deal. That sets the terms. Like, so they either need to do one of two things. They need to invest now, or they need to introduce you to somebody. They can't just sit on their butt and wait for you to be successful and then come in later. That's what you don't want. Third meeting with any of these venture firms, this is your maximum chance of closing a deal. Yep. Literally, it rises exponentially and then it begins to fall exponentially. Like if they haven't closed by the third meeting, you've given them everything they need, blah, 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 then they're probably never going to close. Like yep. you, so you really need to lay down the rule. And at this point, I say you give them a firm time frame. Say, look, I need you to invest within the next week. Like you guys need to make a decision within a week um, or I'm moving on. You know, and you can say that I've given you everything. We've had multiple meetings, blah, blah, blah. You know, if, if you want in, I need to have your deal on the table. That is what you do. That works the best. That is kissing a frog three times. I, I think uh, w one thing that's really cool about your book and something that, I mean, I, I, I haven't delved into the VC world, so I'm sure that Val kind of knew what's going in, but like reading it, you start to learn, start to glean the information that you have pretty much all of the leverage when it comes to setting the terms for the for the VC stuff. Uh, and that's something to me that that didn't I, I didn't even think about it or, or register it in my brain just because it's like, oh, well, like 
they're giving you money. So you would imagine that they're the ones who are going to kind of set the tone of the conversations and set uh, deadlines and all these kind of things. But that's actually not the case. It, it's it's kind of the reverse, just because at the end of the day, um, obviously, and you bring this up too, but a desperate company is going to take it, is going to look desperate and more often than not, is not going to get funded. So if you're at the point now where you're, you know, three interviews in, um, you have a lot of leverage uh, in that conversation. Um, another point I wanted to bring in and something you brought up was, and something that uh, I wanted to hear you elaborate a bit more on is the idea of like, your mission is, isn't to uh, isn't to prove that your idea is right. It's to prove that your idea is dead wrong. Uh, I, I'm wondering, like in within those conversations, like you know, in the introduction, when you start meeting more people, and even when you maybe get into that partner meeting, uh, at what point? At what points are you kind of putting out these feeder questions of like, please prove this wrong? Am I doing this right? Guide me a little bit more. So from the very beginning when you start your company, this is why I say don't have an idea. Because as soon as you have an idea and fall in love with it, you're gonna to wanna to prove to everybody it's right. Like I am the visionary, this is my idea, you know, uh, we are going to Mars and I'm gonna to prove to you it works, right? Yeah. But I, <laughs> I like to say, uh, your job is actually the opposite. Your job is to throw everything at your idea to kill it. Like you have to kill your baby. Only if your baby is indestructible, does it deserve your attention? Like, does it deserve your love? Like if this baby, if you can't find a way to, to undermine this idea, to show that it won't work, um, then yeah, go all in for it. But until that point, you should be looking and listening very closely, whether it's venture capitalists, whether it's your customers, whether it's your advisors or your employees, if they're poking holes in there, it's so easy to turn a blind eye to them to say, no, 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 you don't understand. Or you just you dismiss them because you believe in this. This is another reason I said at the beginning, pick a direction, pick a direction so that you don't fall in love with your idea. You fall in love with the direction you're going, what you ultimately want to accomplish. I want to make the fishing industry more sustainable that is my i don't care how i do it like there i can have a dozen different ideas and i can kill off 11 of them if one of them like really takes off then i've made a huge contribution right so so i'm going to go through these dozen ideas and we're just going to kill 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 if we kill off all dozen we'll come up with another dozen and you will learn along the way this is the process being an entrepreneur being an innovator is a process of discovery so i tell you know, I wrote a whole book on innovation too, how entrepreneurs innovate called Make Elephants Fly. So it's all about, you know, you going out into the world and actually going on this journey of discovery and learning. And then when you piece the right pieces together, when you get them all together, boom, that's when the idea crystallizes. Doesn't have to crystallize at the beginning. I want to give a few examples. Elon Musk, he didn't have the idea for Tesla. That wasn't his idea. Some other he was an angel investor in that company, but when he saw everything start to come together and the opportunity there, that's when he jumped on board. Of course, he's amazing. He made that company, you know, do probably a, a lot more than those original founders would have. They kind of resent him for taking all the credit, but um, you know, great entrepreneurs out there are looking in the world for great opportunities that that are exist. They're not just looking for what's in their head. Like Steve Jobs, when he went into the world, he didn't invent the whole Mac, you know, Macintosh uh, design, you know, the whole interface user experience. He borrowed that from Xerox Park and other people. Like that was like, they had already developed it. He just put it into the world. Like he was an innovator, a true innovator. Um, when 
uh, YouTube launch, they were, most people don't know this. They were a video dating site, video dating. They totally failed. Like, but they had built a platform and they discovered because they wanted to share some videos themselves with their friends that, Hey, this is a great way to share videos. And then later it became the biggest repository of videos in the world, you know, the biggest entertainment channel in the world, but that wasn't what they started with. So, uh, going out there and killing your baby is a great thing. You know, it's like a really good thing to kill your baby. The other point you mentioned is that when you're with investors and they aren't committing and you tell them you can walk away, that is approaching it from a position of strength. Like no investors are motivated by feed, uh, fear and greed, right? They, if you're going to get them to commit, it's not just because they like you. <laughs> they're looking at so many deals. They're going to have to feel a sense of urgency. Even if they like you, like, like what you're doing, they're interested. A lot of times they'll just wait because waiting is to their advantage. They'll see what, you know, if you're not, if they don't think you're getting funded, why rush? See what happens. See, they always say, come back in six months, show me your progress. This is so common in Silicon Valley. It doesn't do you any good, right? So you need to, you need to structure the urgency that the venture can, it's all a game of psychology. People are emotional beings. We like to think we're rational. We like to think that we're data-driven. We are not computers. Like, yeah. This is why we use computers. This is why we have deep learning algorithms because they can do things humans cannot do. Humans are actually very emotional. They will respond psychologically to your presentation. And if they feel like, oh my God, this entrepreneur is gonna walk out the door and get funded, I'm not going to let them go. Like, I am going to, I am going to get, get, grab them. But if they feel like this entrepreneur, now nah, they're not going to get funded soon. You know, I can let them walk out the door. I can always come back. They're going to do that. So uh, one thing by saying, you know, you have a deadline. I'm, you know, I'm talking to other people. I can't necessarily let, let you in. That's all psychology. You have to make a decision now. You are suddenly in the position of strength. And it's like, Everybody wants the fish that got away, right? So they, if they think you're going to get away, uh, their fear of losing the deal is greater than their fear of losing their money. So this is a really important, like if you get the fear of losing the deal greater than the fear of losing the money, you can close the deal. Yep. If it's the other way around, nope. Yeah, and I, I can, I can definitely, definitely see that because every, now that I've had meetings with some venture capitalists, some venture capitalists, they're definitely more later series, like series A and like their check sizes are like, our, our, our round is 1.6 million and they're like minimum check size is 3 million. So they're not even a good fit at this round. However, those conversations actually make conversations with angel investors to your point a lot easier because I can already bring up who's already interested, who's following us, who's who's tracking our progress, who I've already talked with, uh, conversations I've had with other companies. And those trigger a lot faster the, the response that, um, like interest and kind of when's the second meeting and like can i demo the product these kinds of things and it's very interesting because in the beginning it was kind of like very very slow but now it's coming like when can i use the product when can i try it out when can i start doing some things in <laughs> the next phase of this this cycle before i'm, I'm ready to write that check and it, it's very it's very important to kind of create that tidal wave because if you're just talking to one in silos and you're treating them as silos it doesn't work because each one to your point is like they'll just do the waiting game they're like eh you know, six months from now, come talk to us again, you know, when you want more capital, these things. But if you treat it like a tidal wave and each investor conversation you pack onto each one, it makes the next conversation easier. Uh, and then to your point about trying to close on the second deal, that is something that like right now I'm working on. It's like, 
how to make it in that way of showing that kind of strength because that's also very very important of your confidence and understanding like yes we need this capital yes you need to write this check right now because if you show that weakness or if you look like you don't understand why you're raising that capital why would an investor in the first place put their money to you because you don't seem confident in why you're even asking for the capital in the first place exactly um so i mean based off of venture capital obviously the other world of that is most companies need a bootstrap right bootstrapping is probably more common than people expect and bootstrapping is there's, there's a couple options you got you gotta work part-time you can work full-time work on your venture find other ways to create capital and finance your company and push it forward and obviously like viral marketing guerrilla marketing all these kinds of things what, what is your recommendation to, to a lot of student entrepreneurs? Because I think the interesting thing with student entrepreneurs is a lot of times they're not financially stable. So for example, uh, when we started Free Logic, I was actually working at a company called Esri, and that's how we financed a consulting company just to get us like the original softwares and original payroll and these kinds of things. I was able to finance it for my part-time job or full-time job before I left. Um, but a lot of student entrepreneurs, if they're, especially if they're building a venture in college, right? And at a university, that, that's a big jump for them they, they have to do it. They don't really have a choice. But what would be your recommendation, especially for student entrepreneurs uh, with the concept of bootstrapping? Um, so they kind of understand the reality of what they're getting themselves into um, post-graduation, especially if they're working on that venture during college. A lot of great companies have been started bootstrapping. So many, like people don't realize this. So bootstrapping is a great way to do it, but you have to know your limitations. So first of all, if you want to send people to Mars like Elon Musk and you are a college student and you are bootstrapping the company, forget it. Like, it's not going to happen. Like, I always say, pick an idea you can do with the money you have because then you aren't reliant. Like, there's so many entrepreneurs out there who pick an idea that requires huge amounts of capital and then they spend their whole time looking for this cap. They never make any progress. Like they're just looking for the capital. They have this, all they have is an idea and a dream, like, which doesn't go anywhere. Like Elon Musk could raise that money because he'd already been successful. So maybe those big ideas you put out on the table until you're more successful, till you have the relationships, people in the industry, people who are well-known, they can raise that capital right off the bat. Pick an idea that you can literally build yourself with, or with the other, with the other people around you, with other students, right? Can you all get together and build something and launch it? Now, usually these are software because software is like cheap. Like, you know, you have cloud hosting, all you need, you already have your laptop. Literally, it's just your time. Like, so if you can, you know, feed yourself, you can build the product. And that's what I tell them to do. Like go pick like usually a software project and learn. Like you will learn so much doing this. Just dive in there. All of you go through the whole process we've talked about, bootstrap it. And look, if you never need to raise venture capital, Great. There are a lot of companies out there, first of all, that raise a lot of venture capital, but they don't, they end up not succeeding and they sell, but the venture capital takes it all the profit. Like, because literally they, they can have clauses in the agreement where they can take like double what they invest initially off the table before you get a penny. So you have to worry about that. Um, other times they just grow too big for the actual business. A lot of business ideas that you might have, are better as a small business than a large venture funded business. They just aren't right. They won't scale. They aren't big enough. However, as a small business, they could really, they could give you the lifestyle you want. 
They could give you the income you want. They could even potentially make you very rich. Like if you're running a small company with uh, very few employees and you're pulling in $5 million, wow, you know, <laughs> you and your employees are doing well. Like you can all do well. If you're running a big company and you're pulling in $5 million, you're not making anything. Like <laughs> you're, you're running a, you're in the red. So keep that in mind. No, I, I, I think that's actually really important. Um, one of the main things that I wish college students, students that are interested in entrepreneurship would think about, right, is you don't have to invent the next like Facebook or these biggest companies if you're trying to get into entrepreneurship. One of our uh, actually first consulting clients that we now are a co-owner of is a barbershop. And the thing that's very interesting about a barbershop that most people don't understand is the cash flow of a barbershop is most likely higher than most different businesses due to the fact that everybody needs to get a haircut. It's a necessity. You just have to build the brand correctly and having a, a strategy of scale. Because the reason why most barbershops don't become multi-million dollar barbershops is because they only have one central location and retail outlets. You're never going to be able to capitalize on that unless you have a massive space and a lot of barbers in one spot, but that's going to be very, very difficult. But that's one thing I always point to students that are interested in entrepreneurship is, is that barbershop because it's a business. It's something that has been proven in the past. You know that there's cash flow. It's still, you can innovate within the barbershop. You can still get creative with it. You can learn a lot in the process, but it's something that you can start up without worrying about like raising millions of dollars in capital or doing all these kinds of things. And you can learn a lot from that process at an early stage, have that lifestyle of like, I'm a business owner, I'm making capital, all these kinds of things and not worry about the pressures of raising the capital, building up the team, trying to do something that's never existed before, going through this crazy process. Um, and, I, and I think that goes back to what we talked about from step one, which is that a lot of people, when they go into entrepreneurs the first time, they wanna be famous. They wanna have that unicorn company and all these kinds of things. And they're going in for the wrong reasons. And that's the decisions they make of why they wanna go for these insanely big concepts, which the bigger the idea, the harder the process is gonna be. Um, which you don't rationalize until you're in the weeds of it. And then at that, at that moment, it might be too late and then you made bad decisions and it might've caused a complete <laughs> shift in what you actually wanted to do with your life. So um, I, I think that's a, an important point for student entrepreneurs. It's like, it's okay to think a little bit smaller, think of what already exists and, and then build up on that um, as you stated. And eventually you can still build that billion dollar unicorn company, but it doesn't mean that you have to do it straight out of college. Yeah, you're a lot to learn. I tell students all the time, you know, there's nothing wrong with going out and getting a job. Like you can learn a lot on that job, but choose the job where you will learn the most, not necessarily the one that will give you the most money upfront, not even necessarily the one you're most qualified for, but the job where you will learn the most about running a business. And then you can take that when you do your, your first startup and you can put that to work. So always, you know, college teaches you something, but it's really just the starting point. Like real life teaches you so much more. So as soon as you get out of college, that's when you really have to start learning like, and studying and trying and experimenting and doing everything you can to figure out who you are, what works in the world. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's such an <laughs> important take. And I think the other part to that is you should never stop learning, right? Like it, it's yeah. life is all about being a sponge and every day learn something new because you never I, know what it takes. You. That is my philosophy in a nutshell. I literally, I go through at least uh, one book a week, like at least. And why? Because 
every author, like they put down their most amazing thoughts, like distilled into a book, you know, their life's work, and you can just take it and inject it into your brain. And then every time I learn something because of the nature of my work, I get to share it. Like, so that helps me and it also helps everybody I work with. So I'm learning from reading. I'm learning every time I engage an entrepreneur, like to uh, help with their company, to advise them, consult with them. I am actually learning as much from them as they are from me. So they will learn from my experience and all the companies that I've worked with, but also they have their expertise, their business. They know more about that than I do. So it's a real treat for me to dive into their business and start to figure out what their challenges are, what, you know, how that industry works, you know, what they're inventing, how they see the future, all of that. So yes, learning is it never ends. And, and it's one of the, you know, if you love learning, uh, this being an entrepreneur is a great thing absolutely yeah, yeah never uh, never a dull moment when uh when when you're manning a bunch of uh when you're manning the ship and having having to wear a bunch of hats you know absolutely so obviously everything we talked about today was tied into the book surviving a startup and uh, which we talked about uh is i mean it's it's the reason why we're having such a good conversation because the book itself is so conversational i mean it has it, it really talks through the, the mentality of building a company and, and it doesn't the reason why I really like this book is that it's not talking in the less it's not like a educational lens like this is how it is here's the structure blah blah blah, blah. but it's, it's it's talking in the lens of like how we're talking right now that's how I felt uh, kind of going through the book so Luis actually I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts um, because a lot of these things are tying into like startup that is intended for kind of scale what, what was your your lessons learned? Because li like we were talking about, this is a lot of this stuff I'm, I've am i been learning in real time. And there's a lot of things in this book as well that I made me really re-rationalize a lot of essence. But I'm curious on your end, Luis, what was some of the, the lessons learned that you had from this uh, this book? Yeah, for me, it, it was kind of, I think you, you you said it correctly when you said it was kind of like a reframing of the knowledge that you had. Like, like, like I mentioned before we kind of started this interview, um, you know, uh, me and you, Val, we've, and most of our team, we really dive deep into specifically business books and entrepreneur books and, you know, how how to run your business, how to do this, how to do why, because we're, we're learning. We're constantly learning and we're trying to figure out best practices and we're trying to figure out how to do it the right way and do it the most effective way and the most efficient way. Um, but when I read through this book, it was one of those things to where, like, uh, I've seen this before but I've never seen it phrased in such a, in such an approachable way and a way that makes it immediately click in my head. Like they're um, like the whole VC chapter that to me was the most interesting chapter because it's like, I, for, uh, for one, I'm not in that world. Um, so reading through, I'm just like, wow, yeah, that was really going through it. <laughs> I, was, I was like, uh, I it made me empathize a little bit more with them, but you know, it's my, my biggest takeaways I think is just, it is kind of, coming out of it is i mean at the end of the day this book is a fantastic it, you you mentioned it a few times that like this is like a few chapters you're like this is your like 10 minute mba on x or on y um and i i can attest to that it's a, this book is really good for that i mean i've read you know one of the more popular books like your personal mba or something like that i've read that book it was fine but like this book to me basically distilled everything that that book had, but in a very, in a very startup centric way, but in a very approachable, it's just, my main takeaway is I loved the book. Honestly, like I, 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 I truthfully, Steven, I, 
I'm probably gonna purchase the book just to have a hard copy and just to put it on my bookshelf. Like that's, thank you. That's, how, that's yeah. So, thank you so much. Yeah, Absolutely. You, I wrote this book. When I write a book, it it's how I speak. So you hear me speaking right now. You know how I talk. I'm yes, passionate, absolutely. right? I am yeah. a passionate guy, and and I put that into the book. I also write a book, the type of book I would want to read. So I, it wasn't like one idea going over it and over it and over it, you know, in many different ways. It's all all the ideas. Like when I read a book, I want to learn. I want something I can put to use in my life. So I tried to give everything that you know I found really useful and other entrepreneurs are finding useful. Put that type of knowledge in there. Yeah, no, I I I, I could definitely say that that's exactly how how yeah. it came to be because I've read books from like Zero to One by Peter Thiel. I've read like uh, Growth Hacking. I've read all these books tied into different concepts of entrepreneurship and kind of piecing them together. But the reason why I really like this book is that you you talk about each thing in a in the order of progression. Right. So you're talking about it in how I should be rationalizing those things, because the reason why I like the VC chapter before the bootstrapping and before you talk about growth hacking is because it helps you rationalize of like, I actually might not be ready for venture capital at this point in time. And now I should start thinking of bootstrapping. How do I go about bootstrapping? How do I then build off of there? How do I talk about scaling? How do I hire a team? How do I do customer acquisition? Um, because if, if you said venture capital later down, I feel like it might have created actually more of a disconnect because then people are like, oh yeah, I'm already doing all these things and I can do venture capital. But now that it rationalized it early on for me, I'm like, huh, maybe I'm not ready yet. Maybe I need to reevaluate some things. <laughs> and I also did that because a lot of people come to Silicon Valley just to raise venture capital. Like they, they're literally, they yeah. think they've made it when they raise venture capital. So I know entrepreneurs, right? In, in their mind, it's like, you're not successful until you raise venture capital, but that's not true, right? Mm -hmm. You are not successful until you build a real business. And it doesn't matter if you ever raise venture capital. So let's get that out of the way because, you know, people have this delusion that success is the venture money. Success is not the venture money. Yep. And, and what I what I said earlier, too, is money won't solve your problems. So even if you do raise that capital and you have huge underlying problems in your team or your idea, what you're trying to pursue, the, the money is not going to do much. There there are so many companies that have raised literally hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital and then failed. And you're like, how is that even possible? Like yeah. hundreds of millions, I'd be happy with a couple million. Like yeah. these companies. And it's because some of them actually use that venture capital to mask the underlying problems they have. So there's this company called Fab that was doing flash yep. sales online. And, you know, most people don't remember it or they never heard of it, but that company raised $400 million <laughs> and they were using the money to acquire new customers. The mm. problem was that those customers were dropping off. They weren't mm. sticking with this, you know, they weren't becoming repeat customers. So yes, you're buying customers, but you end up spending more on marketing and a customer acquisition than you do, then the customers will give you in profit over their lifetime with your product. The model was broken, but because they kept showing revenue growth, a lot of the venture capitalists didn't look beyond that. They didn't dig deep enough. They're like, oh, this company's growing. Yeah, they're growing because they're spending huge amounts on marketing. They're not growing because they're keeping their customers and these customers are actually staying with them and, and spending lots of money. So uh, 
this is, it's a good lesson to learn. Like it doesn't matter, you know, you may think you're bulletproof. Like if you raise a hundred million dollars, no way. Yeah, our, our, our favorite example is Quibi um, that raised like uh, yes. closer to about billion, billion dollars. It was like $1.2 billion. Yeah, and venture capital and completely flopped because their understanding of the customer segment, the usage of what they were creating was a huge disconnect. And, and me and Luis talked about it all day long because we had ideas of how, like literally on our, our podcast, we had like five segments where we were like, if they did this, this would have made a lot more sense. If they did this, this would have made a lot more sense. All they had to do was like, we are their ideal customer. I commute all the time, I'm traveling all the time, I yep. won't quit content. But the way that they try to approach it was in such a lens of like, I'm right and this is how I push into the market versus actually figuring out what customers want and, and building it out that way. So yeah, yep. I, I can definitely, definitely echo you, that. You remember Magic Leap? Yes. The yes. AR yeah, yeah, company, yeah. so yeah. hot. And how many billion did they raise? They raised like several billion dollars. and. We don't hear about them anymore. We don't know what's happening. I mean, there's so much, they're still straggling along, but it's like not, nothing happened. Nobody wanted their product. Nobody bought their product. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I remember I was, a, I was a computer salesman when they had the partnership with uh, HP, I believe, when they had like mm -hmm. the two AR sensors built into like the base of the laptop. And I remember like when we first got the demo and, and an HP rep came and like walked us through it. I was like, wow, that's really cool. But then like, practically speaking, I was like, okay, you, I'm going to show the customer this one time when I'm selling it and they're going to be like, wow, check that out. It's really nice. And they'll never use it again for the rest of the rest of the never, life of the laptop. Ever. Never, never, ever. So all, all these people, you know, those, they couldn't give away those AR headsets. Nobody wanted them. Uh, you, that it shows you can have billions of dollars. It doesn't matter. You know, it's not, that doesn't make a business successful. So entrepreneurs, the sooner entrepreneurs get this in their head, the better. And the sooner they understand like you guys, that it's not an easy path, the better. Because if it was an easy path, we'd all be billionaires. Like <laughs> all of us, like everybody, on, you know, because everybody would do it. It's, mm -hmm. it's gotta be hard. Yeah, no, absolutely. Sure. And, 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 and talking about that, actually one way that we really like to kind of close out our shows is having the guests uh, provide a failure story. If you have a story that you'd like to share tied into that, because one huge reason why we do that on our show is to showcase that one, things are not easy. <laughs> everybody makes mistakes and everybody learns from those mistakes. And sometimes those failures tend to be your most pivotal moments when you recognize and rationalize and then find what that next big thing is. So I would love to hear if you have a, a failure story you'd like to share with us um, tied into entrepreneurship that maybe ties in all these key essence together. Sure. I will talk about one. So my first venture funded startup that I got funded, that was going along great. We were actually doing interactive television in the early days. So we were taking live TV shows like TV shows and actually synchronizing content on people's laptops to the broadcast. So our first customer was MTV Viacom. And basically they had a music trivia game show with Ahmed Zappa. It's a, you know, amazing thing. And people could play along online with our platform with the TV show and actually win prizes as they were watching it. So, and then they would get their name on air in real time. So we built out all this technology 
MTV loved it. After that, we closed deals with Turner Broadcasting, Warner Brothers, NBC, you know, Game Show Network, History Channel, you know, which is part of A&E, on and on and on. Like we had all the big customers coming to us. We were on top of the world. Then a big public company wanted to acquire us. Like they came to us to buy us. And we were like, I was like, well, because, you know, we'd only raised one round of funding. We hadn't raised that much money. I was like, let's sell. But our venture capitalists were like, no, we're worth, we are on a roll. Like we're the number one in our sec in interactive TV in the world. We are going to keep going. We don't want to sell ourselves short. So, you know, this was my first company. I thought, well, that venture capitalist knows a lot more than I do. So we're just going to roll with this. We kept going literally six months later the dot-com bubble burst, like boom. That coincided with exactly the time that we needed to raise capital. Like we had spent all the money we had and suddenly all around us, it was a bloodbath. Like everybody was going under. We, we had paying clients, so we thought we might be okay. But then we found out that with the dot-com bubble bursting, all the TV networks, their ad revenue has dropped. So when their ad revenue dropped, all these quote unquote, new experimental projects, interactive projects, it was the early days, right? Interactive TV was something that they didn't, you know, they were trying out, but they couldn't really sell the ads because the infrastructure wasn't there. So they were losing money on them. They were doing them more for promotional reasons because it was cool and new and, you know, but as soon as uh, they had to cut their budget, boom, we were out. We were like one of the first things cut. And just to show you, like NBCI, which is NBC's interactive group, had 250 people at the time. Overnight, they went down from 250 to three people, like literally three. So they just cut those entire interactive team because it was the early days. Like they didn't really understand and they had to cut their budget. Go in there and we're like, can you, know, can you uh, fund this anymore? Can you work with us? And they're like, you can sell the ads on your own if you if you can and you can keep the show running but we're not going to give you another dime and that was brutal like i was in such a world of pain first of all i love this company i love the people we were working with we had the best product on the market we you know we were like really well known like in 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 hollywood like we were the, like the leading kind of interactive you know entertainment company at the time it was called spider dance and to watch your baby crumble around you like it was excruciating like literally uh, we just started having to like we couldn't pay the rent we had the super nice plush offices and uh, right a block away from venice beach we had uh you know all these employees you know on the east coast and west coast we just started adding to let them go bit by bit by bit we were because we were like we had no money and no venture capitalists would fund us because all of a sudden our revenue was going up 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 and then <laughs> dropped like so they're they, you know they weren't going to fund us and it was the dot-com bubble burst very brutal experience um uh, i they actually uh we actually were in a point where we also had borrowed money we had borrowed millions of dollars on top of our venture financing to help us fuel our growth. Because when you're doing well, borrowing money is cheap. You don't have to give away a lot of equity. However, when, when suddenly you have to pay back that debt, 
you can't just scale down your company because we had these huge debt payments. Like we couldn't even just leave our offices and go back and work in our homes because, you know, we had these big debt payments and they, they were actually under huge amounts of pressure. They were this venture bank and they, because of the dot-com bubble, they had made so many loans that had gone bad. They were in bankruptcy. So they had hired this ex-Marine to come in and get the money from us, like squeeze us for every penny we had. And, you know, I'm talking to this ex-Marine, I'm dying inside. And I just tell them, you know, we don't have the money. You can't like, you know, this lemon has been squeezed to death. Like you're not gonna get another drop out of it. And, but I've cut a deal. I go, you know, I didn't want to wind up in bankruptcy court. Like that's a long and, and not pleasant process. So I just said, look, we have this technology. We will give you our IP, our intellectual property, and you just let us go. Like, you know, just let us go. So we handed the intellectual property, they let us go, shut down the company. Now, that was a really painful time. I actually went into a depression after that. Like I went into a depression, like I couldn't get out of bed. You know, I had failed. I had this buyout opportunity that I, you know, we had turned down. I was the CEO, we hadn't taken it. It was so hard to, to let this go. And I kept running these tape through my head, telling myself, you're a failure, you're a failure. Your company failed, you, and it was too painful. You cannot go through that again. You should not be an entrepreneur. You should go get a corporate job, blah, 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 you know? And at a certain point, I recognized what I was doing to myself. I was programming myself to never be an entrepreneur again. I would, and I looked at myself and go, so my experience of being an entrepreneur would have been a failure. Like I went out, tried it, failed. And then for the rest of my life, I played it very safe. I didn't want that to be the story of my life. Like we all write our own life story. You know, we're writing it every time we make a decision, everything we do. I said, that isn't the story I want to write. I want to write about the guy who failed and then just bounced right back and tried something else and just kept going like and 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 achieved whatever he's going to achieve in his life right whether it's you know whatever i can do i want to do it that is the person i want to be that is the narrative i want to tell myself so i stopped saying those negative things to myself stopped beating myself up and stood up and said i'm rewriting the script this failure was I'm not gonna like delude myself. Like this failure happened. I have a lot I can learn from it, like an amazing amount, but it was a life experience. Like I didn't know the bubble would burst. Nobody knew, our venture capitalists didn't know. We were, you know, I got to live through this amazing time. I got to do all these amazing things and I got to experience this now. That makes me, you know, it has paid off. Like I didn't know how it would pay off then. Like how could a failure pay off? Like, like I'd much rather have the money and the success, but, the failure paid off because now I'm working with entrepreneurs. I can relate to them. I know what suffering they're going through. I have been there. I've been totally depressed. I have been in, you know, I have been so down and blaming myself that if you're doing the same thing, I can actually help you now because I've been there. And I know there is more you can do and that you don't have to go down this path. So uh, that is my story of failure and redemption. I, I really appreciate that story. I think, I yeah, think that's so that's important great. because you showed you had the, the 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 highs of the highs which then went to the lows of the lows and it's so important to understand that that spectrum can happen overnight and 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 sometimes it's not even your fault like sometimes you can't control that environment and you have to rationalize the world is a crazy place like so many things are out of your control 
like you just have to embrace it and like say what i'm really like i teach entrepreneur now you know make a great story live a great story if you do that you're happy like whatever happens like you can be a failure failure stories are great like you may make a comeback in the future and then that failure would seem like even more dramatic because like you or you may not like but that's you know you you know appreciate whatever you get and this make the best of it and go with it and look at like the exciting part like what you're getting to do all these experiences you're getting to have because it isn't the end result it's all these crazy things that happen in between that's your life <laughs> the end result is just what it, wherever you wind up with and you know at, and eventually you're just going to die anyway so just go through the the madness that is our world and embrace it that, that's that's awesome <laughs> yeah that's, all, all i can say is yeah it's a fantastic story um really appreciate you talking to us about that and it's yeah it, it's it's nice to know that you as someone who's you know mentoring and doing all these incubator things you you have been through the gauntlet in every way shape and form and it's it's just great it's fantastic uh it's honestly inspiring the story thank you yeah thank you uh and to and to just to close out on the failure story what would your one piece of advice be for students that are currently dealing with failure the biggest piece of advice I can tell you is it's not the end of the world. It doesn't really matter. It's honestly, all these things you think are so important, literally you'll look back on them five years later and you'll say, ah, what was I so, what was I so, like even this company now, I thought that was the end of the world. Like I'd put years of my life into it, you know, my money, my, my reputation, everything. And now I look back at it, it's kind of a fun thing. Like I went through that, like, and it made me who I am today. And I like who I am. So I'm telling people, like who you are and uh get whatever you life is going to throw you all these curveballs get whatever you can out of them like every experience you're having like they're not all in your control people like to believe they are we don't control things like we don't control if we get sick we don't control like you know what will happen to us next we don't control you know much of anything but you do have control over your thoughts so focus on that i that i actually i would say that out of all the failure stories we've had on here and the advice that has to be one of the best pieces of advice that i've heard <laughs> yeah. when it comes to rationalizing the failure because it is it's especially with the younger you are because you haven't experienced it many times it is like it's everything to you and you're oh, so in that i was there i was young yeah. <laughs> totally no so with your company just your imagine what i'm what i'm getting out of this company is everything i experience and everything i learn whatever it ends up it ends up like it's you you know you don't know the future if you knew if you knew where you would end up you would just be there like it wouldn't be an adventure like it wouldn't be a, you know the great adventures the novels you read all these things they don't know if they're going to succeed or not if you know then it's not fun so you got to take it absolutely so how can people get their hands on surviving a startup the book oh super easy go to survivingastartup.com or come to Founderspace. So Founderspace is our main site. You can, I have lots of videos there. I have a free video called the 10 Commandments of Venture Capital. You can go to Founderspace slash T-E-N, 10, and, and, and watch uh, that video. We have um, online startup programs. And for students, our online startup programs are free. We're just like, we totally wanna support students. Like if you're a student, if you don't have money, we're going to support you. And uh, you know, uh, if you have a great company, come to us and apply. <laughs> so we have we have lots of different ways uh, to help entrepreneurs 
raise money. In fact, one of the startups I'm working with now, we are, they are a company and they just made this app called Intro. And literally, Intro is, a, is like Tinder meets AngelList. Like literally venture capitalists, you know, venture capitalists have a lot of downtime. Like they're waiting yep. between meetings, they're traveling on a plane, they're stuck in the airport, you know, whatever it is. They can just flip through startup videos and startup decks like they would on Tinder and like them or not like them and then communicate with the founders. So this it's called it's intro.vc. Um, so go, you know, go to founder space, click on venture capital. You'll see it there. So we have just tons of stuff for entrepreneurs and uh, always love to engage. Awesome. No, I, I, I appreciate that. Uh, definitely anybody who's listening to this, highly recommend this book, highly recommend checking out uh, founder space. Yeah. The resources, all these kinds of things. I, I have that question a lot from students is how can I get access to resources for entrepreneurship, all that kind of stuff. You just gotta go out there and look. I mean, there's there's a lot of resources that exist and it helps that they're all in one space and and, and especially as students getting access to that for free is it's very, very important. Um, but we really appreciate you having me on the show. I, I think this was a fantastic conversation. Like I said, this is this has been a lens of my mind in the last two years. I really appreciate it. It's kind of like <laughs> Thank a, you. For, for me, this is like a like a, a, a nice um, mental break of like what I've been doing, just talking about it. So I, I very much appreciate that. And um, hopefully we can definitely connect again and have you on the show later once you have your next book, probably. And, uh, and sure. continue the conversations from there. But uh, do you have any final thoughts before we just wrap up today's uh, today's no, episode? I'll say you guys are great. Great hosts, really smart. You know, I can't wait to see what you do in the world. Thank you. Appreciate Thank it so you. much. Really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, that's the wrap for today's brew episode. Definitely check out Founder Space. Uh, read Surviving a Startup. Well, I definitely have the links in the description. Um, but that's it for today. Thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you for tuning into the brew. Subscribe to our email newsletter on thebrew.tv. Be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and we will see you next time.